You're listening to the True Life Church podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, visit us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from one of our favorite guest speakers. All right, I'm David. I'm one of the elders here at True Life, uh, at True Life Melbourne, True Life Church of Melbourne. We are an elder-led church. Josh is unwell today, so uh, last-minute uh, audible call. We're uh, we're changing it up a little bit today. Uh, Josh told me not to apologize for not being Josh, so I'm going to not do that. Um, but we hope uh, we hope he gets well, and uh, we'll see him next week. Uh, We'll pick up the Nehemiah series that we've been in next week as well. So we're going to go a little bit off topic today, uh, and I hope hope this is a good message. So let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for this gathering this morning. We thank you so much for everything that you do for us. Lord, help the words of my mouth and my meditations be be true to your word, and that I teach with excellence here uh, as we we make our way through Sunday morning. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. All right. Bit of spiritual warfare here at the church this morning, like uh, Josh unwell, uh, and then and then I, apparently there was some kind of an electrical uh, bump here that caused problems with the sound system, and then on top of that, uh, when everybody comes in this morning, there's no water in the building, which, okay, that's probably okay, except you also have to remember that there's a whole bunch of kids in the other room that need to use the bathroom, and all the volunteers are here from like 8 to noon, so four hours without a toilet's probably a crappy situation, Um, but here we are. Thankfully, the city of Melbourne showed up and fixed the problem first thing this morning, but there was a bit of a, a, okay, this is spiritual warfare thing going on, and are we actually going to have church or whatever, so we were close to canceling. Must be, must be something going on that Satan's like, I'm going to fire everything I've got, so we're just going to get right into it. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about an upside-down kingdom, and the young adults have already kind of been through some of this, so they're going to have a bit of a review, but we're talking about... Uh, this kingdom that we are a part of here uh, as Christ followers. And this is a kingdom that um, it, it doesn't look like a kingdom that we're familiar with. It's completely upside down from the world type kingdom. And so I just wanted to jump right in. If I was to, if I was to say to you that, hey, I think I'm going to go ahead and run for president of the United States... If you were to look at me and say, yes, that guy could lead our country, or no, that guy would be a a bad person to lead our country, what are those values that, that, that would help you come to that decision? What is it that goes through your mind when somebody announces their their bid to to try to run for some sort of government? And and here we are, this in 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 this world that we live in today, the United States is currently a world power. So you're talking about somebody with an intense amount of power at their fingertips, ready to wield that power if necessary. We look at kingdoms today through the lens of how we live in our world. And it's important for us to understand that this kingdom that we live in here, this world kingdom, is just not the same as the kingdom 
that Jesus brings with him. Turn with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in one of the baskets in front of you. Uh, We are a Bible teaching church. So I'm going to be reading out of this book today, and I encourage you to do the same. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 3. We're going to be a couple of different places today. We'll eventually end up in chapter 5. Turn with me, uh, Matthew chapter 3, and we're just going to read the first couple of verses here in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the whole idea here with the prepare the way of the Lord, lordship, indicates authority. And so this kingdom of heaven is at hand. Skip on down with me into the next chapter, chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John, John the Baptist, this is Jesus, when, he, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is that coming of the new king and the new kingdom, and verse 17 really puts the censure on it. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're seeing John the Baptist say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some translations you may read, I'm reading out of the ESV here, the English Standard Version. Some may replace that word at hand with here. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus is saying, look, y'all have been doing a thing. But the situation is different now. If you want to be ready, you have to change. We're coming up on June 1st, very soon here, about a month, a little over a month away. What happens on June 1st? We start hurricane season in the state of Florida. We, have, we, do, we, have, do, we do have seasons here. Everybody says, well, Florida has no seasons. We have, we have tourist season, hurricane season, Uh, hunting season, and three entire days of winter. Like, we have seasons. (laughs) Love bug season's another one. We have lots of those. So hurricane season's coming, and what do we do if a hurricane is actually coming and it's going to hit Brevard County? I can continue to do life the way I was, or I I can address the fact that something's changed. And I should probably prepare. When we say the word repent, we're talking about I'm going in one direction and I'm moving about my life in this direction. And I say, you know what? The situation isn't the same anymore. I need to change directions and do something different. Now I can ignore the fact that there's a hurricane coming at at Brevard County. Maybe it's a big one. 
Or I can say, you know what? I'm going to do something a little bit different. And Jesus is saying, repent. And here's why. The world kingdom, which you already live in, is now going to be interfered with by the kingdom of heaven. And are we ready for that? So, we're going to move on now into chapter 5. And chapters 5, 6, and 7 of of the of of uh, Matthew are are all about the first of these massive sweeping discords of Jesus uh, that that are in Matthew. Matthew has five of these discords, uh, these big speeches uh, that we see in the book of Matthew, uh, and, and and Jesus lays out different subjects in each of these, and they all tie together. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous of them. You've heard of this, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We are not going to go through all of 5, 6, and 7 today, but we will go through the very first part of it. This is called the Beatitudes. Now, obviously, when Matthew was writing this, he didn't say, I'm going to write something called the Beatitudes. He didn't put that little heading in there. We added that afterwards. But this is Jesus bringing forth the preamble to the kingdom manifesto. Like this whole thing of Matthews 5, 6, and 7 is, is basically, here's what the kingdom of heaven is. I'm laying it out for you, and let me give you a little taste of what it looks like, and then we can move right into the rest of it. So I want to go through what are these kingdom values that we see here in the, uh, in the Beatitudes. Understand that everything we're going to read in here is going to be completely backwards from what we would think would be a kingdom of this world. It doesn't make any sense. And so just keep that in your mind as we read through this stuff. I'd like to start uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The first of these Beatitudes is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? First off, again, right off the bat, we see this upside-downedness of this whole thing. Poor in spirit. Yeah, I just, I woke up this morning and I thought, you know what? You know what sounds awesome? I think I'm going to go poor in spirit today. Like, who does this? Like, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't jive with who we are. So the opposite of that would be like, well, what if somebody was rich in spirit, right? How would that person look? How would that person act? What would they do? This poor in spirit thing, when it comes down to it, Comes And I'm going to say it at the beginning of this section. I'm going to say it at the end. It's assuming a right posture before the king. We have nothing to offer God other than existing. There's nothing that I can do to make God love me more or less. There's nothing that I can do to, to improve his position. There's nothing that I have that he doesn't have. There's nothing that I can do that he doesn't need. Like... Everything about this entire kingdom is his right from the beginning. He has no need for me, so why am I here? Because he wants me to be here. Because if he didn't, I would never exist. In fact, he could make that decision now or later on, and, and we would not even know 
that we weren't here. So, assuming a right posture before the king is step one. Like, we have to get that through our heads. We are the children, not the other way around. You've seen the movie uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and there's, uh, if you haven't seen it, tough. I'm going to spoil a section for you here in a minute. It's a very old movie, so you've had time. There's a scene at the end uh, where Indiana Jones goes to the, this, it's this uh, city that you've seen called Petra, like a big, big city carved into the wall of this like big canyon, this chasm. And one of the clues is, is the penitent man shall pass. And he's trying to figure out what this means. And a penitent man is somebody who's what? On his knees, assuming that right posture. And he kneels. And right as he kneels, all of a sudden, this big like razor of death comes across his head. And had he been standing, he would have been twice the man he used to be. (laughs) Thankfully, he got it right and got on his knees. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer. I want to push forward really quick to chapter 6. Chapter 6, one page over, turning uh, there, verse 9. Pray then like this, Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is all about dependence on this king. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Everything here is a prayer of dependence, a prayer of you are the authority, you are the king, not me. There's nothing of value in me, and to enter into this kingdom is an act of humility from the very beginning. It's kind of like, you know, uh, later, later on we'll see in, in Matthew uh, talks about uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. What's the punchline there? The punchline is money's not going to get you there. Power's not going to get you there. Influence isn't going to get you there. Humility alone, understanding your position. You aren't the king. It's the king's agenda. It's not yours. It's what he wants. It's not what you want. Um, we, we did a little exercise in the young adults. It was really fun. Like, what if, it, what if when you turned 18, part of your, of your uh, citizenship in the United States was you got a token, one token, and that token allowed you to make one law in this country that had to be obeyed. How would that look if all 350 million Americans got to make just one law? I believe in freedom, except for this one little thing. I think everybody should be made to obey that. It would be a dumpster fire. Like, Can you imagine how bad things would get? We have to abandon our imagined right to control other people. We don't have it. We'd like to think we do, but we don't. Because at the end of the day, I can't control what you think at any level. Now, what happens today if a sitting president makes a law? What happens when the next president comes into power? Well, will they abuse that law? So now there's this, okay, well, I don't want to change things too much. 
because now that other person might abuse that and turn it towards them. So we don't want to give, we don't want to give our guy too much power because if we do, then the next guy who's not, our, who's not on our side might get too much power. The beautiful thing about this is how long does this kingdom, kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, it lasts how long? It lasts forever. Who's in charge of this kingdom? Jesus. And we can trust him. So we can give him all the power. It's not some, I'm, I'm going to be halfway there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give a little bit of, of, uh, of authority to you. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to be kind to my Lord. You're going to be kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you some of, of my allegiance. But because I don't trust you, I'm going to hold some back. Because I've got I to be able to protect myself. Where when we look at Jesus, and he's here on the cross giving himself up, gave everything, we can look at this and say, you know what? He's got my best interest in mind, and I'll go all in. I'm all in for that. Turn with me over a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read a couple of little passages here, and I just want you to, I want to show you what this looks like. What this looks like. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start here in verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Continuing on in verse 38, And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Simon is also Peter, Simon Peter, so we'll hear that. Uh, Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And she stood, he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately he rose, she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Here's the thing. Jesus is commanding authority, and everybody who sees it recognizes that authority. Isn't it easy when you see somebody who has authority? Maybe you don't necessarily know much about that person, but when you see them, you're like, I would follow that guy. I would follow her. Because of the authority that they command, you know that they are in charge of those things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Continuing on in chapter 5, verse 1. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. The lake of Genesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word... Subtitle, which I know from seeing you already commands authority. At your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For when, for he and all who were with him were astonished at this catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of thunder, they call them, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What does it take for fishermen who have done this all their lives, like if they had last names, it would be like Simon Fisher. Like that's his, that is, that is who he is at his core was a fisherman. And he says, I'm willing to go follow a homeless guy and give up everything I've ever done and everything I know to be true because this guy has authority. And Simon nails it. Simon Peter nails it. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He fell down at Jesus' knees. He assumed a right posture. Now, Peter doesn't always get it right. Neither do I. I see myself a lot in Peter. He screws up all the time. But at the end of the day, he knows who's in a king. He knows who's authority. And when we're looking at these beatitudes, the first one says, poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because that is is the position that a Christ follower, a follower of Jesus Christ, who says Jesus is Lord, that's the position that that person takes on their knees at the feet of the king. I don't set the agenda. I don't set any part of it. It's it's one agenda. It's Jesus Christ's. We are a people of tremendous need, and we recognize that need and that dependence. What are people, who embr- what are people like who embrace this belief? Are they needy or are they gracious? Are they demanding or are they pleasant and likable? Step one, Christian, you are not the king. Full stop. End of story. Jesus is the one true king. Get on board with it. Assume that right posture before the king. Back to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 3. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, most of the time, the good news that we're hearing here brings joy, brings happiness, hope. 
promise, a truth that sets us free, a future. So, blessed are those who mourn. What, what am I supposed to just like walk around being all, oh, I'm like super sad. I'm just like, oh. I mean, is this, is this what this is calling us to do? Am I supposed to like do this? Am I supposed to, to go and mourn? I'm just like going to be all weird and stuff and everybody's going to be like, dude, what's wrong with him? Like, he's just like, I don't get it. Like, so this mourning thing, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a state of being that comes from knowing the truth that I have nothing to offer the king. Typically, back in the day, you'd have somebody who was a, a person of authority, say in, 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 in time, medieval times, and you'd say, look, I, I would like you to, uh, to, to give allegiance to me. I, I'm a king, or I, I have all this land. You're going to give me some of your, uh, some of your goods, some of the, the, the stuff that comes off of your farms. Maybe you're going to uh, take some of your servants and your men, and you're going to give me one month of military service out of them. And in return, I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to represent you in the greater government, in the greater country. And this is called an oath of fealty. And this oath of fealty was something that made a whole lot of sense to the people here that this, this letter was written to. Like, they got it. We want a king. We want somebody in charge. We want somebody who can protect us, and we'll, we'll pay them to do it. And in this upside-down kingdom, you've got nothing to offer the king. You don't, you don't have it. And he's still going to protect you. He's still going to give you eternal life. He's still going to take you to heaven with him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. My comfort comes from knowing the truth, that no matter what happens on this world, no matter what happens within this kingdom, I'm good in eternity. Amen? Amen. The upside-downedness of this thing is really evident right here. Oh, I'm just going to feel bad and mourn all day. Because, you know, that's what I do. Because I'm a Christ follower. It's terrible. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? There's, there's some people who might say that it's power under tremendous restraint. That may be one definition of it. But what I can tell you is that under no circumstance that I've ever seen is meekness portrayed from a world kingdom perspective in a positive light. Okay, if I'm, if I'm again, well, let's go back to the president of the United States. If I'm president of these United States and I'm a meek guy, which means I command the power and the might of the greatest military on planet Earth, and I'm going to be meek. What kind of president do we have? It's a weak president. So that's the way it looks. When we say, we say meekness isn't, isn't the same as weakness, but here's the deal. If somebody is, is deciding to not use that power of authority, it doesn't look good from a world kingdom value. 
But when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, and we say meekness, why, why would I withhold my power to make change in this world? Because I know that God's agenda is more important and he has the power. Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Oh, the meek inherit the earth. I thought it was the powerful that inherited the earth. I thought it was the rich. I thought it was the famous. No. Jesus says, you got it backwards. It's the meek who inherit the earth. Those who, try to, those who are not trying to be powerful and noticed and strong and famous, they are the ones who are going to get it. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What's one thing that you always wanted and you never got? Maybe, maybe it was something you desperately wanted as a kid. Maybe it was, maybe it was something you, you, you got when you were a teenager and you just, you just got to have this thing. For me, it was things like a Lamborghini Countach because it was so much cooler than the Ferrari Tessarossa. I'm just changed my mind. Like, it was a cool car. Or maybe like a pointy-nosed jet, like an F-16 fighting Falcon, flying at Mach 2 with my hair on fire, pulling nine and a half Gs, like, sign me up. Like, I am hungry for that. Uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid, it's, it, it, it's a kind of a lame movie, but you've already seen Space Camp? Yeah. yeah. I wanted to go to Space Camp, and I wanted to have this crazy opportunity to uh, go sit in the in the uh, orbiter during a, a test firing, and then actually have the thing accidentally go into orbit. And so now I'm this kid astronaut. Like, oh, I guess I have to figure out how to land the space shuttle. Like, that's I'm I'm hungry for that. Like, I want to go to space and be a hero. What does it mean to be hungry for something? First off, if I'm going to be hungry for something, I have to not have it. Because once I've got it, I don't have to hunger and thirst for it anymore. So what am I hungering and thirsting for here? Righteousness. Oh man, I don't have it. I do not have righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? And do we actually hunger for righteousness? Because I'm here to tell you, I hunger for rightness. I don't like being wrong. I'm scared to death standing up here and telling you about this stuff because I'm fearful that I'm going to be wrong. I hope so. I hope so. Here's the thing, we, we are really good as a, as a people, especially in this culture in this day and age, and, it's, and it's, it's the same way everywhere, no matter what. We are really good at being right. We are really good at standing up for our team. Are you a Democrat? Are you Republican? Well, if you're one and your other guy's the other one, well, they're wrong. Because I'm right. And Jesus is looking at this and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. 
because it has nothing to do with any of this stuff. This kingdom of the world is broken and busted. The kingdom of heaven is completely different. And I hunger and I thirst for rightness. But that's not what this is about. On top of that, if I actually do hunger and thirst for righteousness, am I looking for pure, actual righteousness, or am I trying to weaponize it? How often do we come across and say, well, you're doing it wrong to somebody who doesn't even believe in God, who doesn't, who doesn't care about this book, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm in their face, I'm saying, well, you're a sinner. Sinner of what? And I'm sitting here trying to make my case about, about well, you're, you're going to spend eternity in hell. They're not, they're not on board with any of that yet. How do we come at these? We hunger and we thirst for righteousness so that they see something in us that doesn't make sense. It's upside down, and yet I come away with this thing with an incredible amount of joy. Can righteousness be obtained? I don't think so. Not this side of heaven. Not while I'm walking around on this earth's gravity. Not while I'm breathing this air. So how can I be satisfied for something that I can't ever have? Only through the power of an upside-down kingdom with Jesus. Only through that power. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we're pretty good at showing mercy, I think, as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a people. We're pretty good at showing mercy. Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, as long as it's not somebody like Hitler or Osama bin Laden or President Trump or Biden, we wouldn't show any mercy to them. We're really good at showing mercy to people who are in our tribe. We're really good at showing mercy to people who already have that shared belief system. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the merciful. For they will receive mercy. I'm really good at caring for people when I'm going to get something back. Even if it's just thanks. Thanks. But what about when we get nothing at all? What about if we don't even get the credit? Do we still show that mercy? You see, Christians don't really have the market cornered on this. Oftentimes we see people who are secular, who are not Christ followers, who have nothing to do with Jesus, and they're some of the most merciful people we've ever seen. True mercy is shocking. It's countercultural, And it goes against basic human nature. Basic human nature is, I'm born, I'm going to get old, and then I'm going to die, the end. If I want something, I have to get it now. Because when I'm dead, I can't take it with me. True mercy is wholly self-giving, and with no getting in return. I'm going to look at eternity instead of right now on this world. That's where the mercy comes in. When we see true mercy, we often want to know what the angle is. Like, what are they going for? What are they, what are they aiming for here? 
What do you want and how much? Dad, my son comes to me and he says, he says, hey, Dad, I just want to tell you how cool you are. And I'm like, okay, what do you want? How much is it going to cost me? Like, I really appreciate your comments. True mercy just doesn't make any sense. Ulterior motives shape the way that we communicate and the way that we behave. So what about those times when we really can't find the angle? We see somebody doing something for somebody that they cannot do for themselves. Under any circumstance, they're, they're, they're repaying something or they're forgiving something and they get nothing in return. Why is mercy one of the Beatitudes? It's a complete rejectionist attitude to world values. It's completely backwards. And mercy, in case you haven't been following along, is a core character trait of God himself. What does God need from us? Nothing. What can we offer God? Nothing. Why are we here? Because he wants us to be. The very fact, we, we give nothing to God. We, we add nothing to God. We add zero. And yet, here we are. The very fact that you breathe and were born means that God is merciful. Because he's not, he's not getting anything out of us. He just wants us. Now, one final thought on this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Every single thing that you get out of the kingdom, everything that you've been given, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, all of it, it's not just for you. You are given grace. You are meant to give away grace. You are given mercy. You are meant to give away mercy. You are given peace, you give peace. You, give for, you get forgiveness, you give forgiveness. Every single thing that we've been given as Christ followers is meant to be given back out. This is not something that just happens to me on a day and then I'm, and then I'm, I'm saved. This is, a, this, is, this is work. You do nothing to get into the kingdom. But once you're in the kingdom... The work starts. We talked about this just um, over the past few months, reading through uh, the book of Titus on the evening services. Like, we, the work is important. Jesus said what? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they did. And they threw down everything, and they said, I'm going to give it out. Everything that I've just been given, I'm going to share it. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? You see, Jesus doesn't start out with the ask. Jesus doesn't, you know, you see these people come through and they, they, they start talking and they say, well, here, here's what I'm going to offer you. Think, think of a, a candidate for for running for so-and-so, and they're going to be like, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is, this is what I have to offer. Jesus doesn't come out with, you know, 
those stupid Republicans, am I right? Or those silly Democrats? Or what's the deal with those Romans anyway? Or, you know, hippies, man, they are so lost. He starts off by talking about the values of the kingdom that are positive. Blessed are the. I tried this line on Beth the other day. I thought it was really fun. My wife. And I said, I said to her, honey, you can trust me, Elizabeth, because I, though imperfect, am pure at heart. Like, what would you think? <laughs> if we weren't already married and I hadn't already leveled up, like achievement unlocked by getting married to her. If I hadn't already done that, like if she was just getting to know me and I, and I, I gave her that line, like she would run and never look back, right? I am pure at heart. You can trust me. Like, what does that even mean to be pure at heart? I mean, I would be skeptical of me if I said something like that to her. Pure means, let's look at the definition here, it's unmixed, unadulterated, it's clean. It's not don't do bad and instead do good. It's, it means singleness of heart. I'm into photography a little bit, and one of the things that, like the most important thing you can do, like it's, a, it's, a, it's always a balance between like exposure and, and shutter speed and you know how much light, aperture and all that stuff, but the, probably the most important thing is, is the thing in focus... Is it tack sharp? Is it, is it clear? Because if it's out of focus, it's a useless photo in almost every case. If my subject, the thing that I'm going for, isn't in focus, if I'm, if I'm taking a picture and I've focused on the background and the person I'm trying to take a picture of is blurry, it's useless. So when we talk about this pure in heart, I've got my eyes on the prize. I have focused 100% on following Jesus and his values, his kingdom, assuming that right posture before the king. Nothing in the world will stop me from becoming the man that God is calling me to be. You guys have seen uh, Lord of the Rings, and you got Frodo, and he's got that ring, like the, right? What, his entire focus is about completing that mission, and nothing gets in his way. Like, he is singular in his, in his attention and focus to the mission. This is what pure in heart is. Let nothing distract me from pursuing God with all that I am. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We see, in the sake of time, I won't take you through these different passages, but we see so often in here where Jesus says, we don't need to use force. And so there's a big difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Uh, movie uh, Men in Black when, when the two of them are like finally getting guns and, and 
Jay has, has this big rifle gun, and he's like, this is a Series 4 deatomizer, and you get the noisy cricket, right? If I had a Series 4 deatomizer, I would call it the peacekeeper, right? Because, you know, you see somebody with one of these things, you're like, oh, I'm messing with them. But this isn't what this is talking about. This isn't talking about, like, if I had two dogs, I might name them, like, Smith and Wesson, right? You know, um, how, how, come, how come we haven't seen total world annihilation from nuclear weapons today? Because there's this term called mutually assured destruction. So if, if we fire on Russia, Russia fires on us, everyone dies. And so, well, I don't want to die, so I'm not going to fire on them. They see the same thing. Peacekeeping through huge power. And, uh, and having enough guns to be able to beat the other guy, and enough weapons to be able to beat the other guy. Peace through might, peace through strength. Let me tell you, friends, the threat of violence is a lousy deterrent. You better behave, or else, I tell my kids, well, or else what? Hmm. What am I going to do? Now, now I'm called on the carpet. I'm going to go use violence against my kids. Like, that's just not what we're called to do, Christian. So the deal here is seeing peacekeeping versus peacemaking, getting in the middle of it and saying, look, you guys are fighting the wrong battle. You're, you've picked a spectrum. Here, here's a good one. Star Wars is better than Star Trek. Come at me. Change my mind. Or here's a better one. Star Wars is better than Harry Potter. Ooh. How do you make peace with that? You make peace with that by saying, look, you're fighting the wrong battle. Democrat, Republican, left, right, conservative, liberal. I don't really care what your spectrum is. Jesus is saying... The spectrums are irrelevant. Knock it off. Make peace. Don't just, don't just come to some strike of balance where you know that, okay, well, we're teetering a little bit over there. It's like, stop the game altogether. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verses 11 and 12, we'll go into here in a minute because they're kind of a follow-on. Here's the thing. Why does this one come after blessed are the peacemakers? Because if I'm, if I'm, having, if I'm having a chat with somebody and they're, they're on one end of this spectrum, and you're on the other end of the spectrum, and I come in here and I say, well, you guys are fighting the wrong war. What are they going to do? They're going to try to pin me down and put me on one side or the other. And the fact that I'm not playing that game, I'm not even on the board, it makes them mad. You will be persecuted if you are a Christ follower. Because you're completely different. You're not playing the game of being a Christian. Or you're not playing a game of being in this world values because we're not of this kingdom anymore. I've switched. I was in the world kingdom. I decided I didn't like it. I'm coming over here. I'm still living there. I still have to be a part of it. But at the end of the day, the values of this world 
do not matter. And if I take part in it, I'm minimizing the impact of the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a Christ follower and you are actually doing the work of Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. People will not understand. They're not going to play. And our response to that is really important because guess what? They're not believing in this. And I, if I get there and I go start getting mad at them because of the fact that they're not believing in God, well, uh, I'm, I'm being persecuted. I, I, put my, I put a post out there on Facebook and I responded to something. And, and they, they said, well, I'm just, I, I, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm telling them that they're sinners because they don't believe in God. And now I'm being persecuted for telling them that they should believe in something they don't believe. Woe is me. Tough. You're trying to be right instead of being righteous. It's a big difference. I have a few minutes left. I'm going to power right through this here. I want to talk about what the Beatitudes mean. We've gone through all of them. I understand. I didn't write this book. There are a lot of um, really, really smart people who could make a case for any of these things of what these mean and how we use them. But I want us to just kind of think about what we think might actually be the real answer here. First, the Beatitudes could be looked at as a list of commands, a list of things to do, a formula of behavior that I could use to please God. Redemption, by the way, is through God's nature and His work and His, His sacrifice. It's not mine. So I don't like this answer because it means that if I do these things, then I get to be part of the kingdom. How do I make myself mourn, by the way? Okay, I'm going to go make myself mourn, right? So if I make myself mourn and I mourn, then I'm, I'm doing these things. So I don't really think that this whole thing of this is a list of commands holds up personally. Number two, could be a list of ideals or principles, something that I could strive for, the way things ought to be. So what I should do is I should then craft my life around these principles so that, so that these beatitudes are the result of that life. Again, I don't think this holds up because it's now become something that I'm doing in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So what's the third one? Number three, a checklist of things that I have to do in order to be admitted to the kingdom. I can either do these or I am these things. Then I will become a son, a daughter, an agent, an heir of the kingdom. Turn with me over one page, Matthew 5, chapter 20. He says, unless, unless your, where did it go? Unless, <laughs> unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So are these entrance requirements? If so, these entrance requirements are untenable. You can't get there. You can't do it. 
A bouncer at a club has a list. If your name's not on the list, you don't go in. So it's almost like a list of job qualifications, and I don't think these are tenable. I don't think these are something we can just do, especially because Matthew, uh, Jesus says, unless you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're out. Number four, this could be thought of, and this is, this is a good one, this could be thought of as a progressive thought, one progressive thought that takes you all the way through, okay? So, blessed are the poor in spirit. I know I have nothing to offer God. That leads me to mourn because I know I can't do anything. Uh, then I say, well, okay, if I have nothing to offer, then I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to try to, to power my way into the kingdom. I'm going to maintain meekness. And that's going to... That's going to inspire my hunger and thirst for being righteous. And then I'm going to say, okay, well, if I've got that righteousness, I'm going to begin to give that away. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to then focus on following God, singular focus, pure in heart. And then that's going to show me where people are divided. Sin always divides. And I'm going to try to come and bring people together and be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. And then... By the way, that's going to lead to ultimate persecution. So I can see how a case would be made for one progressive thought. I think, however, the best read on this is that this is a list of values of a kingdom that already exists. This is not a list of how things ought to be. This is not a list of things that we should should strive for. It's a description of how things actually are today, right now. What if this was a list of, you know, man, wouldn't it be great if, you know, Jesus comes out there and he says, people, I got this idea. If we all try really hard and we give it our best, maybe, just maybe, the world could look like this. And you all go, man. Yeah, but I don't think it'll happen. I'm not, I'm not on board with it. These reduce the power and the authority of an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. Jesus says uh, later on in one of the other discourses, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he lists these different situations. He's not saying, you know what? The kingdom of heaven could be like. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20, he gets up and he starts preaching out of the book of Isaiah, and then he rolls up the scroll and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This kingdom is now, it exists, it's already here, and you can be a part of it. It is not something that's coming someday in the future. It's not something that we wistfully wish for or hope later someday in the future of our world. Instead, it's a description of something other than the world that already is. The kingdom that already exists with a king who already rules over it. think the band has another song if they want to come on up we can wrap this up this kingdom has a set of values that's already in place and it's real jesus is saying look the kingdom is real the kingdom is realer than your world kingdom in fact it's the truest realest thing ever 
And to be on board with God's redemptive plan, to be on board with God and in relationship with God is to be in this kingdom. To exist within the context of these beatitudes, of these values. To assent, to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The Lord's Prayer is an affirmation of these values and the kingdom that they represent. The response of the Christian who takes part in this kingdom isn't going to say, I'm going to go beat down the world system and make them see the truth and convince them that we need to change the world system to look like this. I'll use politics. I'll use guilt. I'll use force and violence and social justice and creative tweets and social media posts to try to make everybody see it my way and to learn to love each other. In the name of Almighty God, I'm going to make everyone see this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to ensure that he is able to deliver on the thing that he wasn't able to deliver on without me. How dare we? We are so wrong. Christian, this is a choice to leave one kingdom that actually exists. We live in it. You're born into it. And to change from that kingdom to a new kingdom that actually exists, and by the way, always has, before this earth existed. And it's a spelling out of the values in place in that already existing kingdom. This is what the Beatitudes are. This is the preamble to the kingdom manifesto. As you read through the rest of 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is is. Here's what it looks like. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for, for, for a, an abandonment of world values that we have possible through the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can come together and look at our lives here on this earth through a different lens, through a different set of values, for a set of, through a set of values that's completely backwards, and upside down and different from anything that we've ever seen before on this world. Give us the courage to say, you know what? I'm done with world kingdom. I live in it. I'm going to work through it. But my citizenship is not of this kingdom, but of the kingdom of heaven, which is already at hand here today on this earth. Thank you, Jesus.